1: I'm glad you could join me to revel in wrong think today. This is a program that, well, let's just say I may not have the latest hot take on something, but I'm totally okay with that. See, I wake up every day and I have a decision to make. And that decision kind of comes down to this. Do I spend my life chasing approval or clicks or listens at the expense of my integrity and authenticity? Or do I risk being irrelevant by making my decisions from a space of conviction that's deeper than, not antithetical towards, what's hot right now. So, I'm okay with disappearing into oblivion if I'm doing it for the right reasons. I think I am. But my, uh, my reasons are simply this. I'm here to encourage you to think clearly and independently about everything that's going on around us. Because I think there's more disinformation, I mean legit, real disinformation, being beamed at us 24-7 than at any other point in human history, not just since the internet uh, you know, was 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 created. So my goal is to provide you with information that will cause you to think a little bit deeper about the issues and the principles that are at stake today, without marching in lockstep and chanting in unison with you know a particular group, and finding your identity in in the group. I want you to find where your compass, your moral compass is pointing. That's something that you have to choose. I'm just here to help you uh, have the necessary resources to calibrate that compass. All right, hopefully that's not too confusing. At any rate, I'm I'm so glad that you're here and and part of my audience. I want to mention my sponsors who make this possible on a daily basis. They include Dixie Chiropractic, also hslamo.com, Sewing and Quilting Center.com, org lifesavingfood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and governyourcrypto.com. Well, man, there's, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on, and, and I, I say that every single day, and I mean it. I don't know if you've been paying attention to what's been happening in uh, Sri Lanka, but uh, Sri Lanka is completely out of fuel, and people are beginning to, well, they're beginning to come apart at the seams. Attacking their political leaders, stoning their political leaders, beating their political leaders. Sorry, I shouldn't laugh. That's not funny. sometimes Sometimes I think there are political leaders who have deliberately fomented the difficulties that we're seeing right now. And that uh, old saying, you know, that we're no more than nine meals away from civilization collapsing or, you know, the thin veneer of civilization being stripped away and and real chaos, you know, being a part of our lives. I think that's actually pretty true based on what I'm seeing out of Sri Lanka. And it starts with they they have very little access to fuel. Fuel is what powers their economy, just like it's what powers our economy. And... uh, we're headed towards some really interesting times. Now, that may sound gloomy. That may sound like, oh, goodness, you know, do, do we all just go jump off a bridge somewhere because it's, cause, cause life is going to suck as we move forward? Okay, well, I, I'm risking sounding weirder still, but my heart tells me, Our greatest times are still ahead of us. And I don't mean that uh, everything is just going to be easy, like fluffy clouds. We're just going to float along and everything is going to come to us without any effort. I think we really are facing, you know, a, a generational test, probably in the same vein of difficulty, if not even more difficult than, say, the American Revolution and the founding period, or the war between the states and the Reconstruction period that followed it or even the Great Depression and World War Two. Those were all difficult times. In every I, I use them as an example because we came through those things and on the other side of them things looked different. <clears throat> In some cases, things had improved for the better. In some cases things were not as good. I'm thinking especially the last time this this kind of a generational test was before us. But I believe that we are being handed an opportunity to be the kind of people that we were created to be. The individuals that we were created to be. And, and, and I know this sounds lofty and not everybody's going to get it, and I'm okay with that. I, if, if this makes me sound like an absolute nut to you, I'm, I'm totally okay with that. I'm comfortable with being misunderstood. But I believe that we've been given an opportunity to become more refined than we are at this moment. And I think that kind of refining happens through difficulty, through tests, through intense pressure and and heat. You know, the same process by which diamonds are made. But it's all going to depend on how you and I approach things. And most importantly, are we doing things coming at it from a position of principle? Or are we doing, doing this because we're coming at it from a position of fear or anger or hatred or something like that? I'm advising make it something of principle. Make it something that uh, that actually matters. Even if you feel like, well, what I'm standing for is so small, how could it possibly matter? It matters. Because I don't think any of us fully appreciate the ripples that we send out into the world around us. We don't know how far our influence is going to reach. But I can promise you it does. It does make a difference. And that's why it's so important that we remain tethered to reality rather than just kind of floating along with whatever the crowd is doing at the moment, being carried, you know, downstream in time you know by the current and that's hard i don't think i have, i've i believe i've paid very close attention for at least the last 30 years at least i want to believe that i've i've you know tried to be up on what's happening and make sense of it and actively put in time to study and learn but i've never seen a time where there is a greater effort to keep people deceived to keep them anxious to keep them ground down to where they just can't function so i'm going to do my part with well, this little old microphone i'm going to i'm going to encourage you to think and to be skeptical and don't just accept anything but actually you know think about it vet it and make your decisions based on what's right for you, where your moral compass is pointing you. I know it sounds pretty lofty. Some people might even say, well, Brian, sounds like you're just avoiding facing the truth. Well, pull up a chair. Let's, let's move forward into the show, and uh, you can tell me if this is trying to avoid the truth or trying to seek out the truth in a forest of misinformation. Because I get the impression it's probably more of the latter. I'm going to start with... Uh, since it was a primary election day yesterday, for many people across the country, I'm I'm going to start with the idea that uh, I know there were people who were very concerned, well, is this, is this going to change things? And did we get the right people into the right places? And I've seen some cases where people were like, oh, good, you know, Rand Paul won his uh, primary in, in Kentucky. And that probably is a good thing. I've also seen a lot of disappointment where people are saying, well, it's, you know, why did any of this matter? We're still going to have the same old people. It looks like, you know, the establishment or at least the existing order is still going to have the upper hand because the same people are going to be going back into those seats of power that are currently, you know, holding holding the levers of power. So I'm going to encourage you to consider why do you put so much emphasis, if you do, on politics, and, and and labels, you know. For instance, how do you identify? Are You a progressive? Are you a conservative? Are you a liberal? Are you a are you a are you a, a Republican? Are you a Democrat? I don't think those labels matter as much as we try to make them matter. But Paul Rosenberg had a really interesting essay that he sent out yesterday about how um, conservatives become neutralized, and I thought this was good enough. I wanted to share it with you. I Look, there was a time where people would have asked me, well, are you a conservative? And I I would have said, absolutely, I'm a conservative, and I stand for the things conservatives stand for. I'm not so sure that label really means what it used to mean. And I'm not that fond of labels in the first place. So if you ask me, are you a conservative, my answer would probably be no. Oh, well, that must make you a liberal then. And again, my answer would be No. Because I don't believe in word magic. I don't believe, well, if I call you this, then that magically makes you this. If I call you a biscuit, you're going to transform into, you know, a Pillsbury product right there in front of my face. Nope. I think we're all multifaceted individuals. I think that uh, there are some things in which uh, my stance is going to be considered progressive. There's things where my stance is going to be considered not just conservative, but ultra mega conservative. Okay, that that last term may, may not even have meaning, but... My point is, my viewpoint is not dependent upon, well, which orthodoxy does this align with best? What it's dependent on is what is right, what is true, what is good, what is conducive to the principles and practices of freedom. And that's pretty much what my goal is, is to promote the cause of freedom and and to promote the principles upon which it's predicated, So if that's not, uh, you know, if that's not the kind of a turn off like a cold shower would be, well, make yourself comfortable. We've got some fun stuff to talk about. When we come back from the break, we're going to share with you Paul Rosenberg's article about how conservatives are neutralized. And I'm going to give you this spoiler. One of the things that works against conservatives is generally they play by the rules, which is not a bad thing. But they also tend to wait for permission to do things and waiting for someone to tell them, okay, you're fine, you can now be free. Freedom doesn't work that way.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, let's jump right into this. How conservatives are neutralized. This is the latest essay from Paul Rosenberg. This one showed up in my email inbox yesterday. If you haven't subscribed to his free man's perspective, I would really recommend it. I think if I were to look at uh, some of the most influential writers or thinkers who have, have influenced my own thinking, I'd have to put Paul Rosenberg up there near the top of the list, maybe at the top of the list in terms of how to approach not just politics, but life in general. This guy has a very clear take on things. There's also, there's a gentleness about the way he does it that I think is, is extremely effective and and far more grounded in in what being a good human being is about. It's not about dominating people and beating them into submission with your opinions. It's It's about speaking the truth with love, without the need to win whatever exchange you're having, and I think that's that's the way we need to be going as individuals. I think you know, no matter what side you think you're on, that's a good way to approach it. So how conservatives are neutral, neutralized. Paul Rosenberg says conservatives tend to be decent human beings and good neighbors. Now, there are exceptions, of course, but those cluster around people who use conservatism as a cover for their sins. So he says, I'm going to ignore those people for the rest of this post. Conservatives tend to focus on principles on right. And wrong, and this is generally a good thing, but it's a problem for rulers who want to use their power without being critiqued. So when a ruler behaves badly, some conservatives will fall away, but others will rise in opposition, and that opposition is often enough to make things difficult. So dealing with care enough to suffer for it, conservatives, particularly in the U.S., that's a problem that rulers have to address because it disturbs their particular or their peculiar state of grace. So, efforts to debilitate conservatives have been rolled out one after another, and here are two classic gambits of this type. Number one is guilt. Guilt is the kryptonite of Western civilization. For reasons that he says I won't delve into today, suffice it to say that believers in Western values, of whom conservatives are among the last proud members, have always been vulnerable to accusations of sin. When they're accused of something nasty, they'll freeze in place and will generally back up. They'll waste their time and energy explaining why they're not guilty as charged. In other words, they go on the defensive, giving their opponents free space to get what they wanted. The second tactic is setting the bar too high. For whatever reasons, horror stories about what's about to happen spread like wildfire amongst conservatives. A new they're about to story seems to come along every week and it makes the rounds and then fades away. But the oceans of emotional energy are drained away with each iteration. And the problem goes beyond the immediate energy drain. It sets the I'll act if triggers that are never reached so conservatives remain docile so long as things don't decay too rapidly. Now he says the big trick played on conservatives is one that I'm going to examine more closely and even tie to a modern example. Now I try not to do that, but this time it seems worth the risks. And he says the big big vulnerability of conservatives is their proclivity to believe in hidden good guys who are just about to ride into the rescue. Millions of decent and well-meaning conservatives have latched on to one empty hope after another, only to end up right back where they started. But poorer in time, energy, and finances, while the destroyers of what they hold dear march on, barely opposed. And he says, I have no greater example of this than the trust the plan movement, which kept millions of decent people stuck in place, decoding obscure messages for four years. They truly believed that the good guys had a plan and would ride to the rescue. They did have faith and they did trust the plan plan, until the bottom fell out and the plan evaporated. So someone somewhere is lining up the next hopeful story. Now, the deep problem here is an old and entirely understandable one. None of us want to suffer. None of us want to take unnecessary risks. Now, in open circumstances, decent people realize that some risks must be assumed and that suffering is an unfortunate part of life. They want to minimize suffering, but they don't expect to float through life on an upholstered cloud. So they present political, the present political circumstances, however, have supplied anyone who wanted to, uh, anyone who wanted one with an escape suffering free card. That's a magic way of evading the pain and torment of suffering for one's beliefs. And that card is emblazoned with the word democracy. In the U.S., Canada, and Europe, elsewhere as well, people believe that their democracy is a wonderful, nigh magical system ...that balances forces and desires... ...delivering the best of all possible outcomes... ...at least over time. And the only obligation on their part... ...is to vote hard enough... ...or maybe to protest loud enough. So, in simple speech... ...the whole deal comes down to this. If you complain well enough... ...the system will handle everything... ...and no suffering will be required of you. Now, he says, that sounds ridiculous... ...as it stands alone... ...but when you wrap it in the golden aura... ...that democracy now enjoys... ...accompanied by the images of wonderful founders... ...and founding principles... It doesn't seem ridiculous. In fact, many millions of people act according to this principle, even if they never grasp it in such stark terms. Well-meaning conservatives then find it easy to believe that their nearly magic system must have spawned enough good guys to ride in and save the day, even though they've been AWOL for a very, very long time. He says believing this is far less risky than standing as full-blown rebels and declaring that the system itself is broken or worse. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, all of us, conservative or otherwise, must come face to face with a hard truth. He says, it's our job to build what we want. Trusting a magical system to do it for us hasn't worked and it won't work. We have to construct the world we want without asking permission. Such permissions never really come being contrary to the interests of anyone who might grant them. If we want a better world, then he says, "we, we must act. Yes, that can be scary, but we're presently in a downward spiral of tyranny precisely because people wanted to escape suffering. We can't. Now, hopefully that doesn't give you a sense of, oh, it's hopeless. We're just going to suffer. I think Paul Rosenberg is dead on here. And, and and I'll admit, this is something I would have pushed back on very hard even even as much as twenty years ago, I would have said, "Oh no, no, this is you know this is this sounds defeatist." But that's because I still believed, yeah, you know, there, someone is going to come and rescue us. We have a man on horseback headed in our direction. He's going to have all the answers. And we just gotta we just gotta bring him forth. I know for a lot of people, Trump was considered the man on horseback who would come and help make sense of it all. But there are a couple of truths that I think have to be acknowledged. The first one, probably the most important one, is you will not avoid suffering. Suffering is a part of this existence. It's part of the natural laws that govern the world in which we live. Now, that doesn't mean you have to sit there and wallow in it. I mean, some people might be masochistic. They might enjoy it. But for most of us, suffering is something we try to actively avoid. I will be forever grateful to my good friend David Broadbent who introduced me to the idea that there is legitimate pain in life. And one of the best examples I can think of legitimate pain would be when you're out there for a jog or out for a run, your muscles are aching, your lungs are burning, that's pain. But you're better for it when you have finished your workout. The pain that a person feels when they recognize they've done something wrong, they've they've wronged another person, they've harmed another person, and they feel that pain of, oh, I've done something that I know I shouldn't have done, that's actually legitimate pain because it spurs us to improve and correct our course and do something better. So don't try to avoid legitimate pain. Just accept that it's a part of life and to the extent that you can, become comfortable with it, learn from it and continue to move through it it's a temporary place but you're not going to avoid it the people who try to avoid it find themselves essentially living as slaves here's the second truth though and this one is probably the one that that scares people most of all no one is coming to your rescue i'm going to say it again no one is coming to save you okay let me walk that back jesus is coming And he will save you. (laughs) But politically, no, your your man on horseback ain't going to make it. So that means you and I have got to step up, know who we are, know what we stand for. And to the best of our ability, work out the situation and try to provide the solutions that we can. It's a lot easier with God's help. I strongly recommend it.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. want to give a moment here to SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. This, this is one of my fine sponsors. They do have a store in St. George, Utah, 779 South Bluff Street. Great news for any of my listeners in southern Utah. But even if you don't live in Utah, you might find it worth your time to uh, to get in touch with Sewing and Quilting Center. They have everything. I mean everything you need to make the most of your sewing, your quilting, your embroidery. They have the machines from the entry-level, you know, under $200 sewing machines to top-of-the-line long-arm quilting machines. They'll train you with free classes how to use your machine when you buy it from them. They'll service your machine. Even if you didn't buy your machine from them, they'll still provide excellent service for it. And they have all the supplies you need, too. You want to talk about full service? It's all there in one place. SewingandQuiltingCenter.com. You know, a lot of politicians right now are very eager to use the atrocity in Buffalo, New York this past weekend to justify greater wholesale controls over the public. Thomas L. Knapp is uh, one of my favorite commentators. He has a solid take on the passing scene and on various issues, but he also does it with such conciseness. I wanted to share his latest commentary This is from the William Lloyd Garrison Center for Libertarian Advocacy Journalism. The title of this piece is Suppressing Insane Ideas Doesn't Stop Insane Conduct. And he asks, why did Peyton Gendron, allegedly, but he live-streamed it, so it's not like there's much doubt, murder 10 people at a Buffalo, New York grocery store on May 14th? Well, the pat and at least partially correct answer is that Gendron subscribes to something called the Great Replacement Theory. And that's what we mostly hear about in his mainstream media de- in mainstream media descriptions of his 180-page manifesto. Well, he's a right-wing racist who believes political elites are re- conspiring to replace him and his fellow white Americans with people of color. But what most mainstream publications don't do is link directly to the manifesto itself, so that members of the public can easily access it, read it. ...and form our own opinions on its contents. They're telling us what they want us to know about it... ...in the hope that we'll think what they want us to think about it. Now, he says, I was able to find the manifesto... ...not via a major U.S. newspaper... ...but linked from a white nationalist publication... ...by a prominent racist writer... ...after a short search. And Thomas Knapp says, on a quick read... ...the only real conclusion one can reach... ...other than that a shower sounds like a great idea is that Gendron is, well, crazy, very much in the Unabomber vein. He's got a bunch of grievances, and for some reason, he decided that walking into a store and gunning down a bunch of people was the best way to call those grievances to our attention and, per the Great Replacement stuff, to reduce the non-white population directly and perhaps indirectly scare other members of that population into leaving the U.S. But he says there's more to Peyton Gendron and his grievances than the Great Replacement for example, he describes himself as a mild-moderate authoritarian left category, remember, politically, complaining that under conservatism, the natural environment is industrialized, pulverized, and commoditized. Now, some of his opinions fit comfortably into the 21st century's progressive mold. Mainstream media's reluctance to show us the whole sordid thing is self-serving in that sense. But it's also part and parcel of the notion that deplatforming crazy ideas reduces crazy conduct, particularly of the violent sort. That notion has never worked out in practice. In fact, he says the opposite seems to be true. For example, the Weimar Republic made liberal use of anti-hate speech and insult laws to suppress Adolf Hitler's Nazi party. And the Nazis used that attempted suppression to paint themselves as martyrs and to inspire their base to action. So attempting to suppress Gendron's uh, manifesto doesn't stop those who want to read it because they'll likely agree with it from finding it. It just makes it harder for the rest of us to engage his terrible ideas and steer the impressionable away from them with better arguments. Again, this is from Thomas L. Knapp from the William Lloyd Garrison Center for Libertarian Advocacy Journalism. I think he's right. Now, I actually was able to find... A PDF copy of this uh, this young man's manifesto, and I have not read through all 180 pages. I've skimmed it. I've read enough of it. I agree with uh, with uh, Thomas Knapp. By the way, you do you feel like you want to take a shower after reading it? Um, th- this is not the work of a of a healthy mind. But uh, he very clearly states, you know, where he's coming from. You know, it's it's. It's definitely Unabomber level, you know, focus on this is what has to happen and here's why. But the way that the media is portraying this, you know, it just seems like, hmm. Suppressing this is is not going to prevent somebody who is bent on, you know, acting out in a violent way. And it's, it's, a I, I mean, as I read this, I was a little bit nervous because it's like, man, he's, he's written this thing almost like an instruction manual for here's how you can gear up and here's how you can train and here's how you can plan, you know, to carry out a mass shooting of your own. You definitely get the vibe that he's either showing off, look at how clever I am or, or he's uh, trying to provide a bit of a blueprint for someone else to build upon. I mean, he himself, the, the shooter in uh, the Buffalo, New York massacre He references the New Zealand mosque shooter who did some very similar things right down to live streaming, you know, his his killing spree. But I agree with Thomas Knapp, you know, suppressing that idea or suppressing the expression of those ideas. That's not going to prevent these people from acting out. And for me, the more important thing is I want to know. For myself, where exactly was this guy coming from? For instance, as hard as the, the media is trying to convince us, oh, he was a right-winger. Yes, sir, he was a conservative white male gun owner. You know, that's that's the only ones they really want to talk about when something like this happens, right? The, the black guy who shot up the, uh, Frank James, I think it was his name, shot up the New York subway just a month ago? Oh, phew, that's disappeared. Nobody's talking about that. Now, granted, he only injured a whole bunch of people, but his motivations were very clearly out of racial hatred. So why isn't that as big of a news story? Well, it's because there's a narrative that has to be upheld. And here's the thing with mr with Mr. Gendron's manifesto, you can very clearly see that this is a guy who is not operating you know, with a full deck of cards. But the mainstream media leaves out things that where he talks about. He spent a good portion of his teen years, his early teen years, studying and embracing communism. And he's moved, I don't know what direction, maybe it's the horseshoe theory, he's moved far enough that he's come around to where some people would consider him conservative. That's not how he sees himself. He actually, you know, says, well, if you called me a fascist, well, I might agree with you on that. Or if you called me a socialist, I might agree with you on that. The point is, whatever ideologically he considers himself, number one, does not justify his actions. And his actions are really what mattered. Were his actions those of a murderous individual, based on what I've seen so far, including you know portions of the video that he shot? Yeah, I'd say that's, you could, you can safely say, his actions were extremely indecent. But then there's also the idea that, well, if we can just pigeonhole him into this little ideological niche, we can smear and tar and feather everybody else who even is, is close to that side of the political spectrum. And this is something that our media and particularly our politicians are doing right now with uh, with abandon. I mean, they are just insisting. I mean, the president himself is talking about how the greatest threat our country faces is white supremacy. And if you question the narrative, guess what? He's including you as a part of that conspiracy that he sees of white supremacists to overthrow, you know, whatever the the existing order is. I know, guilt by association, who'd have thought a fallacy like that would still have the kind of legs that it has, but it's being used to great effect, and it's scaring people who don't want to be lumped in with the likes of uh, this, this young man. But it's always best to go to the source when you can. And I know there are those that say, well, Brian, you really shouldn't be you know, downloading and reading things like this guy's manifesto. Well, if I want to know what the guy said, I want to know it from his words, not what somebody else is telling me about what he might have said. I learned this a long time ago, watching how the media covered the Bundys, which, by the way, I'm not trying to make any connection between the white supremacists and the Bundys. Some people will be quick to try to make that connection. What I'm trying to point out is, Anything that our media tells us about whatever is happening in the news, be it a little something going on down in Bunkerville, Nevada, or a horrible atrocity that took place at a Buffalo, New York grocery store. By the time that information gets to us, it's been pretty thoroughly worked over. And for people who are just content to passively, passively sit back and absorb whatever's coming to them through the screen of their devices. You know, that's, that's enough. Well, they said this, so it must be so. If you can go to the source, you're going to get a much more complete picture. That doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to agree with or suddenly understand, oh, yeah, well, now it makes sense. I can see why he did what he did. That's that's totally justified. No. But you get a much better perspective when you go to the source rather than waiting for someone else to tell you what it all means. Here's the bigger question, though. Do you trust yourself to make those kind of judgments, to make those kind of assessments? And if the answer is no, I really don't, To get to work on improving your comprehension and your ability to judge error from truth.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout-out here to Dr. Ward Wagner with Dixie Chiropractic. Thank you so much for being one of my sponsors. Dixie Chiropractic is there to help you or anyone you know who is dealing with pain. Now, that could be the pain of car accident injuries. It could be the pain of a bulging, herniated disc in your back. Or it might even be neuropathy. A couple of specials I wanted to point out to you here. Here's a $99 intro special for those who have bulging, herniated discs. $99 gets you this uh, intro special of two treatments plus massage. Or if you're dealing with neuropathy, how about this? The $99 Calmare treatment plus massage. All the details are waiting for you at DixieChiro.com. That's DixieChiro.com. There's a link in my show notes you can click on. And when you make your appointment, please let them know that you're doing it because you heard about them on this program. You know, one of the most disturbing aspects of the current downward spiral of American society is the growing divide among the citizenry. Blaine L. Pardo spells out what happens when you label half the country racist. And that's something we're seeing right now, you know, writ large, right? It's not a matter of, well, we disagree on certain things. It's like, no, you are all racist and we have to do everything we can to contain you, to to stop you, to eliminate you. I presume is is the end game. Blaine Pardo says, hearing of the racially motivated mass shooting in Buffalo, I fully anticipated leftist cries to restrict guns. But these calls were overshadowed by an elevation of a more recent progressive talking point, blaming Republicans as a whole for the attack. Rolling Stone, along a banner carrier for the left, went with these headlines: quote, The Buffalo shooter isn't a lone wolf; he's a mainstream Republican.." I'm sorry, but that is just, that is so blatant. I mean, they, well, if we're going to go in, we're going to go all in. Okay. The right-wing extremists who control our modern GOP are gripped by a racist delusion. And CNN's Jim Acosta came out and laid the blame at uh, Tucker Carlson's doorstep. Newsweek ran the headline, Parkland father blames Ron DeSantis and other Republicans for Buffalo shooting. So overnight, anyone who had conservative values and voted Republican was complicit in mass murder and carried the taint of being called a racist, or so the left hoped. Now, the fact that the mainstream media outlets conveniently aligned to this narrative points to the fact that it was an organized, libelous hit job. Clearly, it was an orchestrated narrative executed prior to the fall elections, pointing to a new level of desperation with the realization that they cannot win on the actual political issues they've lowered themselves to outright lying. Now, the acts of this despicable killer are his and his alone. His actions do not reflect Republican values and ideals. Without any research short of a quick reading of his manifesto, the left is taking a giant step in blaming all Republicans for this outrage. It's a new level of irresponsibility on their part. The progressives have long absolved individuals of responsibility for what they do. To them, this is guilt that must be placed on their opponents. And the truth has no real bearing in this blame game. History has demonstrated that when you attach hostile labels to groups of people and assign negative characteristics to those people, things rarely end well. Just open a history book about the 1930s. For the last few election cycles, there have been trial runs at this strategy. Now they're not qualifying the accusations. If you are a Republican, you are racist. As we saw in Loudoun County, Virginia, if you stand against things they believe in, like critical race theory, you're called a domestic terrorist. And there will be more heinous labels coming in the months ahead. So a real disservice here is that the overuse of the label racist has reached the point now where it's ceasing to have any credible meaning when the media and left-wing pundits use that word to identify people who are clearly not racist, it diminishes it for future uses where it might actually be applicable. Now, a part of the problem that conservatives face is that they don't fight back with the same vigor as those who attack them. Ah, there will be a handful of spokespersons standing up decrying this false reporting, but in the end, that's it. Republicans rarely stoop to the low bar set by the left in these debates. For instance, the congressional baseball shooter James Hodgkinson, who shot and wounded Congressman Steve Scalise, openly declared that he was a fan of Rachel Maddow in his writings. Now, conservatives never would have considered laying the blame of the shooting on her or on the Democratic Party. This taking of the high road has invited the other party to strike with lies and defamation. Now, Blaine Pardo says, look, this is all about the fall elections. No doubt there are some Kool-Aid drinkers on the left who actually believe these accusations. They accept the demonization of of the right with no sense of understanding the evil tied to these declarations. And all it takes for evil to succeed is for good men and women to do nothing. And there are plenty on the left who relish this painting of Republicans as racists and terrorists. They have no self-governing voice to bring themselves in check. Over the long term, this approach is destined to fail. Much like Hillary Clinton's basket of deplorables comment. It will ultimately backfire on those perpetrating this big lie. And when people are wrongly accused, as a group, of being something they are not, it galvanizes them. They come together, they become collectively infuriated and defiant. Being wrongly accused of being something you are not, something as vile as being a racist, is a miscalculation that's ultimately going to come back to haunt the Democrats. The American people are not entirely naive millions will see this as the overreach and propaganda that it is but this is a case where the ends do not justify the means that's a pretty good take and i don't know what what form the you know that uh, that reversal is going to take you know i'm i'm hoping it's not something violent but boy doesn't it not does it not feel like we're being pushed towards some kind of open conflict and to me the sickest part of that it comes down to the idea that the the people who are orchestrating things from behind the scenes, yes, the deep state and the Klaus Schwabs and others uh, who are are pulling strings and financing all of this division. They're sitting somewhere safely on a porch sipping lemonade while hoping to see the rest of us, you know, shooting each other in the streets. How do you counter something like that? I don't have a clear-cut answer. But I do think that Alexander Solzhenitsyn probably had the best idea of, you know, don't participate in the lie. If there's if there's a lie that's being told, don't do anything to help perpetuate it. Even if the pressure is being put on you. Um, I still think about, you know, the, the left is still trying to make a big deal out of, well, you know, when uh, President Trump talked about the rally in uh, Charlottesville in uh, 2017, he said there were some very fine people there, which they have twisted. To try to make it, oh, he was saying the neo Nazis who were there were fine. He did nothing of the of the sort. Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert, actually has done a very masterful job of of showing you what the president said in context. And it does not pan out to he was complimenting neo Nazis. That's just that's fevered imagination on their part. So here's what's required of of you and me. First of all, the understanding that if you're, gonna, if you're going to approach things from a political point of view, you're going to see people bend the truth, uh, shed their morals, discard their ethics, and do whatever it takes. In fact, some of them pride themselves. By any means necessary, we will do what it takes to obtain and maintain our grip on power. Seems to me politics is kind of a losing proposition in that regard if you have to get rid of your values in order to to just secure the win and get that momentary advantage, how valuable is it really? I mean, are you really a person who has, you know, strong ethics or who has strong principles? If there's something you can set aside or even hold your nose so that you can violate them? See, again, it comes down to that individual level. But how many people do you know that are strong enough to say, I'm not even going to participate in it? I'm not even going to give credibility to it by being a part of it. Much less let the labels that somebody else is throwing around, you know, influence me to the point that, you know, I'm I'm going to uh, try to maintain my good standing in the eyes of the public or in the eyes of, uh, you know, people who are likewise politically focused. See, I'm I'm confessing my uh, political agnosticism here. I've lost faith in politics. I know there are some good people out there who are doing what I think is the best job they can do to try to provide friction against that uh, grinding wheel of Leviathan that is trying to assimilate as many aspects of our lives as possible. And I'm grateful for them doing that. But generally, I think the problems that we face and the solutions that we need to come up with are not going to come from a political place. More importantly, I think they're going to come from people who follow uh, the advice of Confucius. Yes, that Confucius, who talks about, you know, if you want to see order in the world, you start with yourself, starting with your heart, starting with with uh, making sure that your own thoughts and your own beliefs are in order. Once you put your life in order, then you can start focusing on your family, your household. Once your household is in order, then you can start looking at your community, when your community is in order, you can start looking at the region or your state. But it spreads outward, and most importantly, it starts with the individual. So, my question to you is what are you doing as an individual to be a problem solver?
0: This is the Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. Uh, God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This program is all about encouraging you to think clearly and independently about the world around us. In other words, my disclaimer is this. I don't have all the answers. I'm not smart, I'm not rich, I'm not good-looking. Frankly, I myself am wondering what the heck I'm doing here sitting behind this microphone talking to people. But I am definitely a person who places great value on truth and understanding that uh, to do that, you got to be willing to do your own homework. You got to be willing to to dig and sometimes uh, you know be brave enough to <laughs> encounter things that challenge what you already understand and what you already know. So if that's the kind of courage that you're bringing to the table, then by all means, make yourself comfortable. Come and revel in wrong thinking. Let's see if we can learn a thing or two together. Again, it's not about you having to agree with me, but I'm going to do my best to offer you some insights on what's going on around us that if they don't convince you that this is is the proper way to see things, at the very least will give you a broader perspective from which to size up what's going on all around us. Our program is brought to you in part by lifesavingfood.com. I've talked for years about the importance of food storage, emergency preparedness, self-reliance. Life-saving food is one of those ways that you can do this. They not only have great shelf-stable, like 25-year shelf-life food storage available in big or small packages, whatever it is that you find yourself in need of, but they also have wonderful self-reliance packages, including ways to purify your water, ways to, to cook your food, alternative means of cooking. It's all about having options. If you want to make sure you have options in case things get a little bit uh, tricky, like, for instance, they're getting in Sri Lanka at the moment, lifesavingfood.com would be a great place to start. Well, for all the posturing from the president on down, there is no data supporting the threat of white supremacy that is being blasted at us nonstop. In fact, uh, one of the things I guess the memo went out over over the last couple of days about, well, you know, anybody who talks about uh, great replacement theory and and the simplest form I've heard of this is that, okay, one of the things that uh, the Biden administration seems to be very fond of is allowing people unfettered uh, access to this country via our southern border and then taking those uh, those undocumented immigrants, I could say illegal aliens, but you get the picture. And basically busing them all over the country, distributing them to different cities. And I think that there is purpose behind that. And probably a good portion of that purpose is we're trying to get voters in place to make sure that we have the numbers so we don't have to work so hard to steal like we did in the last election. Whoops! was that the out loud part? But every time you hear them talk about, well, you know, if, if if people are espousing this great replacement theory, well, that's nothing more than a racist theory. This is what the headlines have been saying here lately. Before we go to Julie Kelly's article about uh, how no data supports the threat of white supremacy, I want to play for you a few dangerous demagogues, notable because these are all coming from the political left, talking about great replacement theory. So if you think the Republicans are full of racism... Check out some of these folks on the left talking about the same exact thing. It seems
0: harder and harder to ignore that the echoes of replacement theory and other racially motivated views are increasingly coming out into the open.
1: In a few years, we're going to be a majority brown country. White people will not be the majority in the country anymore. This will be the first generation ever in American history uh, in which whites will be a
0: minority of the generation at some point. As of 2007... Every year, babies being born in this country, whites now are the minority. In 2044, uh, everyone is going to be a minority.
1: As the demographics change, as white people become the minority in the country, which is coming.
0: Demographics is destiny. Demographics is destiny. Demographics is destiny, right? The country is changing. I've been saying it here, other people have been saying it here for years now, even before Donald Trump. The demographics
1: is destiny. The white population is declining for the first time in history in America while the number of multiracial Americans
0: have more than doubled. So we live in a country where the demographics are changing. It's becoming less white. Correct. Okay. You'll be announcing that we're calling the 38 electoral votes of Texas for the Democratic nominee for president. It's changing. It's going to become a purple state and then a blue state because of the demographics, because of the population growth. The growth in Texas has been almost entirely driven by non-white population growth, mostly by Hispanic and Latino population growth. The idea that uh, you know, whites will, will not be the majority, I mean, that's, it's an exciting transformation of the country. It's an exciting evolution uh, and you know progress of our country in many different ways. The
1: white population is declining. It, it was always on
0: the upswing. So that speaks to the beautiful diversity of America. It speaks to um, uh, how the, that population, will, the demographics,
1: will weigh in politically. I believe anybody who echoes a replacement is to blame, not for this particular crime, but it's, it's for no purpose,
0: no purpose, except profit and or political benefit.
1: And it's wrong. It's just simply wrong. What a bunch of racists. Oh, my goodness. Nah, it doesn't feel any better calling them the the things that they're calling everybody else on the right. But, yeah, those are all very prominent left-wing or Democratic leaders um, spreading that to great replacement theory. Just another illustration of why anything that is coming at you from the mainstream media has to be questioned seriously, doubted openly, and oftentimes rejected. So let's jump into Julie Kelly's article, No Data Supports Threat of White Supremacists. The subheadline here, Joe Biden will use the blood of innocents to paint millions of Americans as white supremacists and wannabe terrorists simply for supporting the opposite political party. Now, this was written earlier this week, uh, where Julie Kelly says, Joe Biden will travel to Buffalo on Tuesday, and he did, ostensibly to join the upstate New York community in mourning the murders of 10 people at a local grocery store over the weekend. Now, she says it is, of course, appropriate for Biden in his role as president to grieve with Americans devastated by such a brutal massacre of innocence, especially an attack that from all accounts was racially motivated. What's not appropriate is for Biden to use the atrocity as a platform to fuel even more hatred and division in a country ripping apart at the seams in so many ways. But that's exactly what he will do. And she's right. It's exactly what he did. The man who launched his 2020 campaign for president, touting the lie that Donald Trump commended very fine white supremacists after a 2017 protest in Charlottesville, can be expected to promote another lie, and that is that violent white supremacists and domestic extremists pose a heightened threat to the country. Now, that tired mantra remains an animating feature of the Biden regime. On his second full day in office, Biden instructed his national security team to devise a whole-of-government approach to combat Domestic terrorism, largely using the events of January 6th, 2021 as the pretext. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki promised a facts-based analysis upon which we can shape policy when she announced that initiative on January 22nd of 2021. But the 32-page report issued by Merrick Garland's Justice Department during a public ceremony in June was long on rhetoric and very short on facts. And by the way, Julie Kelly has been one of the best voices in documenting the government's missteps and overreach in terms of January 6th. Just FYI. She says, while noting mass shootings committed by white men in Charleston, Pittsburgh, and El Paso, the analysis failed to prove what it described as a persistent and emerging threat of domestic terrorism. Now the authors also claimed the victims of the US Capitol joined the tragic history of American terror attacks, including the nineteen ninety five Oklahoma City bombing which killed one hundred sixty eight people, including children. Further, the unrelated handful of acts took place over a six year period, hardly representing of a systemic pattern of white on black violence. Horrible and sickening? Yes. Carnage that merits the harshest punishment possible for the perpetrators? Yes. But is it representative of a pervasive threat requiring the use of intrusive government and private sector surveillance tools once reserved for foreign terrorists? Julie Kelly says no. Of course, domestic violent extremists or white supremacists is political code for Trump supporters. What else could explain the report's omission of violent extremists associated with Black Lives Matter or Antifa? It's not an accident that on the one-year anniversary of the most destructive riots in the nation's history... Biden's missive failed to make a single mention of the damage, death, or nationwide campaign of terror unleashed in the aftermath of George Floyd's death in 2020. No matter how hard Democrats, the news media, and establishment Republicans like U.S. Representative Liz Cheney, who blamed Republican House leaders on Monday morning for enabling white nationalism and white supremacy, no matter how they try to twist the matter, the data simply does not support these accusations. The most current figures are available from available rather are from 2020, one of the most tumultuous years in U.S. history. And rather than telling the story of a country under siege by bloodthirsty white supremacists, the metrics, if accurate, and that's a big if, considering the designation of a hate crime is based on the subjective determination of the charging agency, they all contradict the narrative. With more than 15,000 local law enforcement agencies reporting, the FBI tallied. 8,263 hate crimes for in, hate crime incidents, rather, for 2020. Is the light starting to come on? We'll come back to Julie Kelly's article just the other side of these messages. Please stay with us.
0: This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing with you an article from Julie Kelly. This is from americangreatness.com or amgreatness.com. No data supports the threat of white supremacists, which it turns out is now kind of a code word, at least for the president and his administration and many within the media and on the political left for anyone who isn't in lockstep with them. That's kind of convenient, isn't it, right? We can, we can safely uh, dispense with half the country, or at least half the country, that doesn't agree with their agenda. Why? Because they're all racists. And yet, the data doesn't show that our country somehow has been under siege by bloodthirsty white supremacists. In fact, Julie Kelly says roughly half, according to the FBI's crime data explorer, of the 8,263 hate crime incidents for 2020, were motivated by anti-black or anti-african american sentiment. And of the 4082 offenses against blacks in 2020, you know what the top offense was? Intimidation. A little more than 1200 offenses were for assault, only 5 were categorized as murder or manslaughter. And 100, I'm sorry, 1710 out of 2353 perpetrators were white. So racially motivated crime would be non-existent in an ideal world, but she says that's not the world in which we live, particularly as the ruling class, corporate news organizations and social media platforms bang the drums of a race war on a daily basis. The individual cases may be troubling, but in no way do they incriminate an entire race or political party, much less do they support the narrative of a rampant white supremacist crime spree. Now, Julie Kelly says information from the Justice Department is even more unconvincing. On its hate crime homepage, the agency listed 30 examples of federal hate crimes for 2021. Of the nine offenses related to race, four took place in 2021. The rest occurred in previous years, but were adjudicated in 2021. So hardly a compelling trove of evidence for a department attempting to persuade the public that dangerous white supremacists or uh, white supremacist terrorists rather are ready to strike at any moment. Now, more specific data isn't forthcoming. Overall crime statistics for 2021, including racially motivated crimes, may not be made available to the public this year. That's a timely gift to the Democrats as voters continue to list crime as their top concern ahead of the 2022 midterm elections. Since the FBI switched to a new reporting system, many local law enforcement entities are opting out of the voluntary program, bringing the agency participation well below the mandatory 60% threshold. The FBI already skipped the first quarterly report of 2022, usually issued in late March. And if participation doesn't increase, there's a chance subsequent reports will be missed, too. How convenient. Julie Kelly says there is, of course, a more political reason why the FBI won't release crime statistics from last year. And it's because the results will contradict the administration. According to an independent analysis of three dozen police departments, hate crimes rose by 39% in the nation's largest cities in 2021, with the top 10 metropolitan areas reporting a staggering 54% increase over 2020. But hold on to your hat. That rise is due to a huge uptick in hate crimes against Asians and Jews. Data crunched by the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at California State University San Bernardino shows a 224% increase in anti-Asian hate crimes, a 58% increase in anti-Jewish hate crimes, and a 51% increase in anti-gay hate crimes. News reports out of major cities support the data with a wave of recent attacks in Dallas that has the city's Asian business community in a panic. Police are now looking for a black man suspected of shooting three Korean women at a hair salon last week. But she says Joe Biden will not discuss any of those facts during his trip to uh, Buffalo on Tuesday. Instead, Biden will rage against an imaginary menace. He will blame Republicans and Fox News. He'll demand more stringent measures, including online censorship, to prevent another attack. Biden will use the blood of innocents to paint millions of americans as white supremacists and wannabe terrorists simply for supporting the other political party rather than comfort the heartbroken loved ones biden will exploit their loss for his own gratification there is no stoop too low for old joe so says julie kelly that's a pretty uh, that's a pretty solid take right there <laughs> all right i'm going to shift gears here for a moment something a little bit lighter There is something that's incredibly freeing about not needing the approval of other people. Why am I sharing this with you? Because if you are determined to be a person who lives by truth and who stands up for truth, basically becomes a source of light in an ever-darkening world, you're not going to get the approval of other people. In fact, uh, you're probably going to get a lot of disapproval. That's the price of standing for something. Jonathan Barnes has a great article about being a weirdo in an upside-down culture. He says, uh, you're going to have to be comfy being a bit weird if you want to be free. Jonathan Barnes says, I'm what you might call an eccentric. I've been labeled as different, wild, strange, crazy, wacko, a weirdo, a freak, a clown, an idiot, and a few other not-so-nice names. And he says, I plead guilty to some of these charges, and I must confess that at least some of the time I do things that may appear strange to others, such as being a straight man who cooks who loves gardening and landscaping, and who has a slacker's tendency not to get his hair cut for months. I'm the stranger who plays Johnny Cash gospel music loudly on Sundays as if by religious right, who talks out loud to the neighbor cat hanging out on his front porch, and who digs footstool-sized rocks out of the woods across the street to use in the yard. He says today, far more than in recent memory, we need eccentrics and lots of them. So how do you know that you're an eccentric? Well, you might be one if you believe that a dress-wearing man cannot transform himself into a real live woman. You might be one if you believe your ancestors aren't evil for having white skin. And you also might be one if you think your parents were good people or that U.S. troops going on foreign ventures hurts the little guy and our own country. Jonathan Barnes says eccentric cranks weirdly insist that it's criminal to allow millions of illegal workers to be imported to steal the rightful jobs of American citizens, saving some rich employer's money while drastically depressing workers' wages overall and making it harder for many Americans just to get by. Such eccentrics demand that citizens have a right to be protected from this evil, which they insist could be defeated by a government that enforces its immigration laws. In essence, if you are what was once a normal person, you are now an eccentric. Because these days, the obvious commonsensical things that we all used to know are no longer commonly understood. Now, he says, me? I don't have a problem with being thought of as an oddball. I figure it comes with the territory as I'm a loner anyway. But many of my countrymen don't feel as comfortable going against the grain. Largely because they have steady jobs and fear being fired for their views. Tough luck, lads and lassies. You're going to have to get comfy with being a bit weird if you want to be free. You're going to have to go against the grain and speak up in opposition to the party line, presenting the argument in such a way that others can understand the real truth. He has a great quote here from John Stuart Mill on these eccentrics and society's need for them in his 1859 work on liberty, quote, in this age, the mere example of nonconformity, the mere refusal to bend the knee to custom is itself a service precisely because the tyranny of opinion is such as to make eccentricity a reproach. It is desirable in order to break through that tyranny that people should be eccentric. Eccentricity has always abounded when and where strength of character has abounded, and the amount of eccentricity in a society has generally been proportional to the amount of genius, mental vigor, and moral courage which it contained, that so few now dare to be eccentric marks the chief danger of the time. End quote. That is such a great quote. Jonathan Barnes says, To dispel any doubt in those inclined to take my advice, and as an encouraging reminder of their worth, I have an affirmation, Please repeat after me. I'm not a domestic terrorist, nor am I a hater. I'm a truth-telling, freedom-loving, lovable, old, eccentric. He says, nowadays, the biggest weirdos of all are those with the nerve to tell the truth out loud. I think he's right. And I hope it hits you the same way that it hit me, and that is that, first of all, we're not alone. And secondly, I'm okay with being thought of as a weirdo. I look around me and I see that uh, my fellow weirdos, our numbers may be few, but I'm not concerned with the the numbers so much as, am I doing the right thing? Am I clinging to the truth as I should? That's got to be the priority over just simply gaining the approval of the crowd.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. The Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage has been one of my longtime sponsors and supporters. And I'm so grateful to Heather and all that she has done. Uh, You know, watching the, the influx of people into the Intermountain West has been something truly amazing to see. And it's been curious to see the effect that it's had on the real estate market. I mean, we have been living in one of the hottest real estate markets most of us have ever seen in our lifetime. And that means when a home goes on the market, it gets snapped up right away. And that means that you don't have time to waste if you are shopping for a home or trying to get a mortgage. Well, this is where the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage can help you. Heather has decades of experience in the lending industry. She clearly understands what the lenders need. She understands what the borrowers need. She's the one you want on your side to make things happen when time is of the essence. To reach her, you can call 435-703-4522. Click on the email link I provide in my show notes under sponsors for the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Well, when it comes to Orwellian manipulation of our language, the New York Times has once again raised the bar. Got a great piece here from Tyler Durden on zerohedge.com. This was actually republished on lewrockwell.com earlier today about the New York Times blasted for writing. Ukrainian fighters were evacuated, but they never once used the word surrender, talking about what was happening at the Azovstal uh, metalworks uh, facility in in Ukraine. Tyler Durden says the New York Times is coming under heavy criticism for announcing the end of the lengthy Russian siege of the Avastol steel plant in Mariupol with the below tweet and headline, which says, Breaking news! Ukraine ended its combat mission in Mariupol and said fighters were being evacuated, signaling that the battle at a steel plant was over. Really? Now, objectively, they were evacuated too. Russian-controlled territory by Russian forces and the wounded taken to a Russian-controlled hospital. So the paper of record actually just managed to completely avoid the reality that some 300 Azov militants surrendered instead of opting to suggest that somehow Ukraine's forces decided to wind down their combat mission. And the headline also emphasized they were being evacuated. But then, awkwardly, the very first sentence of the Monday Times report indicated after they laid down their arms, the fighters were taken into Russian custody and transferred to pro Kremlin territory, specifically to Novoazovsk, Let me try this again Novozovsk. Wow, in the Donetsk People's Republic. So, again, they were evacuated, in quotation marks, by their Russian enemies who've captured them. Some nice spin there in New York Times, but uh, I think you've been called on it. The New York Times report said hundreds of Ukrainian fighters were taken by bus to Russian-controlled territory. Ukraine's president said the combat mission in the city was over, capping some of the longest, fiercest resistance. Now, by any objective observer's assessment, the surrounded Ukrainians holed up in the cavernous facility for two months with nowhere to exit, finally surrendered on Monday. Yet the paper of record, along with a slew of other mainstream media, presented that somehow it was a Ukrainian mission accomplished moment. Here's a quote from Hannah Malier, saying, Mariup- Mariupol's uh, defenders have fully accomplished all missions assigned by the command, adding that it was impossible to unblock Avastol by military means. Now, some social media commenters noted that the New York Times has turned Orwellian newspeak into an art forum. A.J. Delgado says, so the Russians won in Mariupol, took Mariupol, and the Ukrainians lost despite heaps of weapons from all over the world and foreign fighters. It would be nice if you could keep us updated with actual facts. Many others have pointed out uh, <clears throat> the Azov battalion's long-established unabashed neo-Nazi ideology which has for years been exhaustively documented, but it's all but disappeared from acknowledgement in mainstream media. I like how Moon of Alabama puts it in this tweet. Reality. Mariupol. Azov Nazis taken prisoners after unconditional surrender to Russian forces. And, of course, journalist Michael Tracy warns of the dangerous pattern of considering uh, concerning such obvious narrative bias when major outlets purport to present the facts regarding a complex, rapidly changing war where few correspondents are actually on the ground in battle zones. Michael Tracy said, this is why you have to assume that pretty much everything coming out of Western media about the tactical progression of the war is a distortion. They're operating within an impenetrable superstructure of ideology that prevents the New York Times from labeling this a surrender. Now I get, this is kind of a touchy subject for a lot of people especially people who are right now very deep in the grip of fear over Russia and all things Russian. The fact that I'm saying, well, you know what? In this case, the New York Times is lying out of their, you know, nether regions to, to try to portray this as somehow this is a positive thing. And yes, why, you know, they've declared a victory and gone home is what's happened here when that's clearly not the case. Okay, I'm not taking sides. I'm not cheering on the Russian troops. I'm not cheering on the Ukrainian troops either. What? You're not standing with Ukraine? That's right. I'm not. It's not my circus. It's not my monkeys. I feel deep sympathy for the people who are caught in the middle in this conflict, and there are a lot of innocent people who are suffering greatly as a result of this military conflict. But I'm also very keenly aware that with this Military conquest and with this military action, which is, is being actively egged on and escalated by the West, by our friends in NATO. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not, uh, not going to be a supporter for any of those things. Uh, who was it? I think it was the Libertarian Party in New Hampshire tweeted this a couple of days ago. I guess it was yesterday. NATO exists to manage the risks created by its existence. Let me read that one more time. NATO exists to manage the risks created by its existence. And I know there are people who are very heavily invested in the idea, but we're the good guys. We are the good guys. Or good or bad, when our troops are in harm's way or when our, you know, allies are in harm's way, or we have a duty to shut up and go along with it. Now, I reject that. I'm not giving aid and comfort to the enemy, and I'm not going to pretend that what NATO is doing is somehow in my best interest. No matter how many American advisors or how much support, you know, Congress may be happening to send to them. Not going to do it. I do see this as a, as a very solid opportunity to point out how the truth can be manipulated. The, the subtlety, the sophistry with which the New York Times goes about reporting this. I mean, for crying out loud, Ukraine ended its combat mission in Mariupol and said fighters were being evacuated, signaling the battle at a steel plant was over. I mean, if all you do is read the headlines or just look at the tweet and, oh, well, it looks like that resolved well and good for them. But it doesn't begin to tell the real story, which is that after a couple of months of being under siege, they surrendered to Russian forces and were taken into custody. I've seen pictures and I've seen video of some of the people that were taken into custody. And I'll tell you, there there are some very unhappy faces. And it's not because, well, they were just defending their homeland against Russian aggression. The unhappy faces I'm seeing are the faces of people who have had since 2014 to essentially go on a rampage against the Russian-speaking people in this uh, breakaway region or this, this region seeking independence from Ukraine and who have been absolutely horrific and committed numerous atrocities. Does that mean the Russians are good and right in everything they do? Not at all. But it does mean that some people who have behaved in absolutely animalistic ways on the Ukrainian side are very likely going to face justice for, for what they've done. Doesn't it suck that we can't really point to, well, who are the good guys in this? near as I can tell, there really are no good guys. And that goes far beyond just the Russians and the Ukrainians. I should say the Russian and Ukrainian governments. To the extent that NATO is getting involved, to the extent that NATO is, is supplying more and more weapons and trying to enlarge and further encourage and drag out this conflict, they're not the good guys either. The fact that they're doing it with your tax dollars and my tax dollars, that doesn't mean that you and I have a dog in this fight either. That just means we're being fleeced to, to help perpetuate atrocities being committed on the other side of the world. How does this all shake out? I don't know. But I'll tell you right now, I'm, I'm very concerned with the direction that it's going because I think, I think there is a degree of hu- hubris and malevolence in most of the political leaders that they would be more than willing to go ahead and start World War III, including a nuclear exchange for the sake of covering up their crimes, especially of these last couple of years in relation to COVID, vaccines, lockdowns, etc. You have to admit, it does a marvelous job of keeping our attention off the leadership and on, you know, their purported bad guys. I'm just asking you to consider if there might be something we're missing here.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, thanks for being a part of my growing audience of wrong thinkers. If you want to subscribe to my show notes, I would encourage you to go to thebrianhide.show.com, Click on the show notes any day. It doesn't matter. Scroll down to the bottom. You'll see a nice uh, subscribe button. Just drop in your email. I'll send you a copy of those show notes every single day that I do the show. also want to thank HSLAmmo.com for being one of my sponsors. Spencer Worthington is one of the finest human beings that I know. He is the founder and director of HSL Ammo. And this is a guy who has built this company from the ground up. He, uh, you know, he did not inherit it. He did not walk into a perfectly ready-made situation. He did it the old-fashioned way through entrepreneurial hard work and, and vision. And he's doing well. And if you want to avail yourself of ammunition for the purpose of, you know, going out and having fun, making a joyous noise for freedom, or developing your skills, or for that matter, just putting your money into a commodity that will hold value Regardless of what the dollar happens to be doing, HSLammo.com is the place I would point you. Well, have you noticed how the more activists insist that LGBTQ indoctrination isn't taking place in our government schools, the more they also push back against any effort to establish clear boundaries against it being promoted in our schools? Curious how that works. Got a great article here from Andrew Doyle on how to stop children from being indoctrinated. Now, Andrew Doyle is uh, he's the comedian and the creator of the Twitter persona Tatiana McGrath. And if you have not seen this on Twitter, it's one of the best parody accounts that you will ever see. But he's also got a solid take here. He says, during one of the morning assemblies at my convent school, our headmistress, a fearsome nun who beat me with a shoe for accidentally breaking a window, announced that there would be an am- there was to be an amnesty on garbage pail kids trading stickers. Do you remember these things? She was convinced that these grotesque caricatures would have a corrupting influence on our impressionable minds. And so, one by one, we shuffled up to the stage, faces hot with humiliation, before ripping up our precious stickers and depositing the remains in a metallic bowl. And he says, I was reminded of this curious ritual when I read recently of the flame purification ceremony conducted by the board in charge of elementary and secondary schools in southwestern Ontario. Almost 5,000 books judged to contain outdated racial stereotypes were removed from school libraries to be burnt or recycled. I guess if if you want to be an environment, environmentally conscious book burner, you recycle them. Some of the incinerated remains were used as fertilizer to plant a tree, an uplifting, progressive, and environmentally conscious gesture, if one ignores the overtones of Fahrenheit 451. Now, Andrew Doyle says... Perhaps it's unsurprising that activists who are convinced that language causes real-world harm should be troubled by the reading habits of children. After all, it's hardly a fringe view. The Center for Teaching and Learning at the University of Cambridge this month suggested that Laura Ingalls Wilder's Little House on the Prairie series ought to come with content notes. That's a substitute phrase for trigger warnings, given that the word trigger connotes violence and might therefore induce trauma. He says this fear that children might be morally corrupted by problematic literature might explain the sudden deluge of progressive children's books on the market just as children are deemed so malleable that they might transform into bigots if they read outdated work. It's assumed that they can be indoctrinated in the correct way if their reading materials are layered with the messaging that reinforces the creed of social justice. As Schopenhauer put it, there is no absurdity so palpable, but that it may be firmly implanted in the human head if you only begin to inculcate it by before the age of 5 the rise of progressive children's books arguably began in 2016 with goodnight stories for rebel girls by elena favilli and francesca cavallo the idea was a charming one it contained profiles of exceptional women throughout history offered up as role models for young readers and examples included Michelle Obama, Maya Angelou, Yoko Ono, even Coco Chanel, whose collaboration with the Nazis was tactfully omitted. Thereafter, the tone of such books became more strident. There was Feminist Baby by Lauren Brantz, Anti-Racist Baby by Ibr- Ibram X. Kendi, and The Little Girl Who Gave Zero Fs by Amy Keen. All of a sudden, highly dubious ideological positions were being represented as uncontested truth, to very young children. Nor was this confined to America. Last summer, the National Education Union, the largest teaching union in the United Kingdom, claimed there was an urgent need to decolonize every subject in every stage of the school curricula and called for activist training for teachers. But it's not simply a matter of race. Books aimed at toddlers which advance the idea that they have a gendered soul are also being promoted by activist teachers and authors. For instance, Who Are You? The Kid's Guide to Gender Identity by Brooke Pesson-Wedby is marketed for children as young as three and introduces them to identity categories well beyond the comprehension of most adults, including genderqueer, non-binary, bigender, and two-spirit. Or consider the following claim from It Feels Good to Be Yourself, a book about gender identity by Teresa Thorne, next to an illustration of a newborn baby. Quote, See, when you were born, You couldn't tell people who you were or how you felt. They looked at you and made a guess. Maybe they got it right. Maybe they got it wrong. So Thorne, it seems, wants children to believe that for years, midwives and obstetricians have simply been flipping a coin and randomly assigning male or female on birth certificates. Now, Andrew Doyle says this is, of course, palpably absurd. And yet it would be wrongheaded to call for such books to be censored or banned. The vast majority of educators understand how ridiculous it is to teach infants that they have a gendered soul or that they are guilty of white privilege. Last year, the Arizona Department of Education released an equity toolkit, which claimed that even babies as young as three months old are capable of racial prejudice. Now, he says, I remain unconvinced that any of this has much of an effect. As one teacher recent, recently said to him, teachers are more prone to fashionable nonsense than pupils. Trust the kids. They know B.S. when they see it. But what of the younger ones? Those who tend to accept and repeat the mantras of their elders. Andrew Doyle says it's unlikely to be a coincidence that the emergence of such activism in the classroom has brought with it a sudden rise of young people identifying as non-binary or transgender. Now some of these children will doubtless be suffering from a form of gender dysphoria. But most will find such confusions resolved through the natural process of puberty. When children as young as three and four are coming out as trans, are we not right to be suspicious that adult influences played a role? As trans YouTuber Blair White said, a transgender three-year-old is like a vegan cat. We all know who's making the lifestyle choices. Few parents have grasped the significance of these developments, largely because these attempts at indoctrination have been couched in progressive terminology. One exception is Wales, where the government is currently being sued by more than 5,000 parents and grandparents over their decision to make compulsory the teaching of gender identity and sexual attraction to kids as young as three. The government has apparently adopted Stonewall's misinterpretation of the Equality Act and have accordingly substituted gender identity for gender reassignment in its equality and diversity policy. Now, it may be that the Welsh government is breaking the law. Section 406 of the Education Act of 1996 prohibits the promotion of partisan political views in the teaching of any subject. And this applies to not only political belief systems like Marxism, but also ideological frameworks like critical race theory. In October 2020, the Equalities minister, Kemi Badenoch, addressed Parliament to clarify the government's position. She said, We do not want to see teachers teaching their white pupils about white privilege and inherited racial guilt. And let me be clear, any school which teaches these elements of critical race theory as fact, or which promotes partisan political views such as defunding the police without offering a balanced treatment of opposing views, is breaking the law. If she's right, it's difficult to see how the teaching of gender identity ideology as undisputed truth could be exempt from these legal requirements. Now he says it remains to be seen whether current and future legal challenges make any difference. In the meantime... Criticism and mockery are by far our best defense. Take the recent controversy regarding the success of Matt Walsh's new book, Johnny the Walrus. It tells the story of Johnny, a boy who enjoys pretending to be a walrus by using spoons as tusks. The online community mobilizes and tells him he must either choose between being a walrus or being a human, and he cannot be both. In response, hysterical staff at Amazon held a meeting to discuss the trauma the book had caused. Executives are even heard strategizing about how to demote the title on their website to limit potential sales. So no books were burnt, but the underlying rationale was the same. Namely, that indoctrination of the young is always a temptation for those whose ideas would not withstand adult scrutiny. But as Walsh's book proves, the idea that small children are in any way interested in intersectional activism is inherently funny. And mockery is always the best way to expose the falsehoods of powerful elites. Andrew Doyle says, if there's one thing the high priests of this new religion cannot bear, it is the sound of laughter. I would have to agree. And I'm not talking about we should be looking for every opportunity to mock and ridicule people who think differently than we do. I do think that uh, maintaining a sense of humor, though, is helpful and keeping a sense of perspective as well. And I think humor is far more helpful than anger or hatred. Well, your, my, your mileage may vary, but for what it's worth, that's my take. This is The Brian Hyde Show.